welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this June 2015 episode is rooting out research mistakes. We'll start off by checking in with Family Tree Magazine editor Diane Haddad with news from the blogosphere, and then we'll continue with Diane in our top tips segment, where she's going to help us root out the myths that have taken hold in genealogy. Then in our 101 Best Website segment, we'll talk about submitting corrections on mistakes on Ancestry.com with Nancy Hendrickson. She's the author of The Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com. And Sunny Morton is here to talk to us about Family Tree University's latest course. It's called 12 Ways to Diagnose and Treat Errors in Your Research. And then we'll wrap things up with Allison Dolan over at the publisher's desk who has some ideas from the Family Tree Problem Solver. We have lots to cover, so let's get right to it. We'll head over to the Genealogy Insider blog with Diane Haddad. off this episode devoting to rooting out research mistakes with Diane Haddad. She is the editor of Family Tree Magazine and the Genealogy Insider blogger. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Uh, Diane, I think we may have to subtitle this segment Confessions of a Genealogist, or uh, we could could call it Confessions of a Genealogy Magazine Editor, because a confession is what you kind of delivered in your recent blog post. It's called Confessing a Genealogy Mistake, and and of course, all of us are relieved in reading it to know that you make mistakes too. So <laughs> I know. I thought, should I really post this? <laughs> but then the whole point is that, you know, it's we not all just make beginners who can make mistakes. And it's very easy to come to a wrong conclusion. Exactly. Well, confess. What did you do wrong? Well, <laughs> I had this um, ancestor who um, he had conflicting records about when he was born And the death date I thought I had, it was in um, some research that a family member had already done, even, you know, that was back before the Internet became, you know, a great genealogy tool that it is. Mm -hmm. And it was in an online cemetery index, and I actually had a copy from a distant cousin's online tree of the burial card with the name and the age and the date of death and the date of burial. So, you know, I kind of thought that one was in the bag. Right. (laughs) And then, um, you know, I just slowly realized that I couldn't find any city directories for this person. I couldn't find him in the 1900 or the 1910 census. I couldn't find a death record, and there should have been, I say in the blog post, a couple places where the death should have been recorded. So that was kind of a red flag that they that he yeah. wasn't in the census that he supposedly was still alive. Right. He, yeah. he disappeared somehow. So I thought, what could be going on? Finally, I found, um, just on a random search, a death announcement for someone of his name in the newspaper in 1890, which is 21 years earlier than I thought the death actually occurred. And it even had the correct address. So oh, a pretty good great. indication right. that... Um, that was the correct date. So for years and years and years, I had this wrong date that I just, I didn't realize. 
Wow. So the 1880 was the last census, and then was he was in the city director of 1889? Was that right before he passed? Yes. Or? Yeah, he was okay. consistently in them, and then suddenly just not there anymore. Right. So what did you walk away from this experience with? What, what's your advice to people uh, who are listening to this story that anybody can make a mistake like this? Well, um, when it's important to... Um, and understand how you came to each conclusion, even mm-hmm. the ones that seem like no-brainers. And um, if there's another person's research involved, it's important to also understand how they came to that conclusion. And genealogists talk about citing sources all the time. That's an important part of this process of understanding how you reached a conclusion. Yeah, exactly, because it, it may not even be ourselves, you know, questioning our own work, but it might be somebody down the road or somebody generations from now. And gosh, having that cited source is so key so that they can go back and they can look it up. And and it's amazing what a different set of eyes also Mm -hmm. can bring to the table, right? Yeah, that's definitely true to have somebody else look at it. And they could, you know, maybe a a bell would ring in their head. Well, why why don't you have a 1900 census for this person? Yeah, exactly. Well, and I agree that when I'm doing my research, oftentimes, you know, you've looked at that item so many times, something sliding right past you that becomes blatantly obvious to somebody who sees it for the first time. So definitely uh, two heads better than one. And you can read all about her investigation and the correction of the information. Like I said, on the Genealogy Insider blog, it's called Confessing a Genealogy Mistake. We'll have a link in the show notes. And then Coming up very soon, Diane's going to be back, and we are going to be in the top tips segment talking about myth takes. <laughs> myth takes. Yeah, it's a, it's a play on the fact that we all make a few mistakes. All right. Uh, and that is coming up next. Thanks, Diane. You're welcome. heard someone say something like, uh, my great great granddad disappeared at age 56. Oh, well, people died really young in those days. Well, would it surprise you to know that many of those often repeated assumptions that we've made about the past are simply not true? Well, the problem is that mistakes or myth takes like these about days gone by can affect the way that you do pursue your family history, ultimately possibly becoming roadblocks to finding your ancestors and really understanding their lives. Well, to help us prevent this from happening, Diane Haddad is back, and she's here to shed some light on common myths from the new article. It's by Nick DeAlto, and it's called Genealogy Mythbusters, and it appears in the July-August 2015 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Welcome back, Diane. Thank you. You know, Diane, I think one of the most uh, common myths is the one that I mentioned really at the beginning of this segment, which is the idea that we assume that folks died much younger in earlier centuries. Uh, Where does Nick say that this whole thing comes from? Well, a lot of it is the fact that um, people had (laughs) the chances of someone making it through childhood at that time were um, not as good as they are today, Um, just, you know, for obvious reasons, because of the the lack of medical care and knowledge that we um, are lucky to have today. But once someone made it, you know, up to a certain point in their life, they could reach a very old age. So, you know, you have people in your family tree who are 
70, 80, 90 years old, even though the life expectancy, um, you know, might have been much younger because it took into account all those childhood deaths. Exactly. I think those um, deaths at birth kind of skew the numbers. Because um, I'm, I'm always pleasantly surprised to see ancestors, uh, particularly my husband's side of the family, and they're well into their 90s. So it's mm-hmm. just, it's like if they're healthy, they're healthy all the way through. And it's, it's just <laughs> it makes amazing. makes you feel like you have a good chance. <laughs> yeah, you hope so anyway, right? <laughs> but I, I imagine that, um, you know, with uh, childbirth being more challenging and less medical mm-hmm. care, that that definitely those numbers would skew it if you kind of average them all together. Um, this article is really fascinating. Um, what is What are some of the things that jumped out to you that you went, oh, I didn't realize that? Kind of surprises. Well, I thought one of the myths that Nick talks about in the article is the one about ancestors being much shorter than we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that would make total sense to me because of, you know, the, the nutrition wasn't as, as good and, you know, they, their food sources weren't as secure as, as we have today. And it turns out that's actually um, not completely accurate that human height, um, it sort of varied by about an inch up until around, I think he said, 1930. And then at that point, um, people start getting a couple inches taller. And one of the reasons that he said that people assume that everyone was so much shorter back then is because you look at, um, you know, old beds, old furniture, and it just seems smaller in scale. Um, But they actually went to Colonial Williamsburg and measured the beds and they were not standard like we have today, but there aren't any that are smaller than a typical bed size today. Isn't that funny? Because it's, yeah, when you go to visit, you go, oh, that looks so tiny, but maybe it's, you know, it could be the room is smaller or whatever. Mm-hmm. The, things can be very deceiving. Deceiving. I like this little breakout box that he's got in the article, um, sizing up your ancestors, kind of talking about ways to, particularly with old photographs, um, be able to kind of judge somebody's height and their size based on other items around them and and that Mm -hmm. you can look up standard sizes of these household items to be able to then compare them to the people that they're they're standing next to. I mean, really innovative ideas. Yeah, he kind of also walks you through a way to use someone's body proportions to estimate their height. Um, So for example, the I think the distance between the pupils of your eyes is supposed to be some um, specific proportion to your height. And so if you have a picture that is usable for this purpose, you can actually measure that tiny little distance and then do a calculation, um, which you can also look up online to help with that and estimate how tall they are. It's not, you know, foolproof, but it would give you an idea. Right. And uh, I know this myth number three that he talks about, uh, our ancestors were mostly illiterate. You know, if he, I, I've looked back at some of those old uh, primers, you know, the, the school books that the people, the people used, and, you know, they go, oh, they just had an eighth grade education. Well, my goodness, it was amazing what an eighth grader had to know compared mm-hmm. to today. <laughs> Isn't that true? So yeah. that, was, that was really a myth that uh, are the, the numbers aren't that different really than they are today, are they? Right. As far as literacy? Yeah, the literacy levels. And for the most part, people learned the things that they needed to know in order to do what they needed to do in life. So um, you don't underestimate the intelligence of people who lived a long time ago. Yeah, Exactly. 
And then in the toolkit, um, there in this article, there are also some some interesting websites and blogs that you can go visit as well. Um, one of them that caught my eye, well, there were two, the, the History Myths Debunked, which was at historymyths.wordpress.org. And there was also um, Life Expectancy by Age, 1850 through t- 2011. There, there's actually a lot of data out there if, mm-hmm. if you really want to track it down and see if um, if your ancestor falls within the myth or well outside of it as well. Any favorite uh, tools that you grabbed out of this article? Well, I thought that Death by Petticoat book looks really yeah. interesting. I haven't <laughs> read it yet, but it's full of more myths that people had. It's named for um, the myth that a lot of colonial women would burn to death because they were cooking over these fires with all these petticoats. Right. And that's um, that's kind of a myth that it was not a, a common cause of death at that time. Yes, that was called Deaths, A Death by Petticoat, American History Myths Debunked. That's by Mary Miley Theobald. Um, and, and finally, it's funny, you know, in reading this, you realize, gosh, some of these things have been brewing for years. And yet we see that spammy email that comes through our inbox all the time mm-hmm. with, with things that are myths. I use Snopes.com. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot to try to check those out and see if they're real. And he says here there's a snopes.com slash history. So perhaps there's a way to even uh, use that website to go back in time and, and check some of the myths that are, are perpetuated. Sounds like a great idea. Exactly. Well, this is a great article, uh, Genealogy Mythbusters. It's by Nick Dialto. And uh, check them out. It says, don't let these three common historical myth takes prevent you from discovering the true stories of your ancestors. Thanks so much, Diane. You're welcome. Accurate information is posted on an ancestry family tree or a transcription of a genealogical record. You know, it has the potential of becoming the myths of the future, causing havoc for future genealogists. Well, in this 101 Best Website segment, I've invited Nancy Hendrickson. She is the author of the Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com to walk us through how to submit corrections to Ancestry to hopefully help prevent this from happening. Hi, Nancy. Hey, Lisa, how are you doing? Doing great. Feeling great. very good about the fact that this whole episode is about kind of recognizing the myths and the mistakes that are out there. And I love the idea that in this segment, we are going to talk about how to fix some of those. And and that's something fairly unique that Ancestry actually has a mechanism for this, right? Tell us about that. They, they really do. And let me just start by saying, if you once you get involved in genealogy research, you will find mistakes. Yeah. And as you said, there are myths that are just will go from generation to generation. <laughs> and now that everything is online, if there's a mistake, then the 10,000, 20,000 people who've gone to a certain site and imported that into their genealogy software, it's, going, <laughs> it's just going to keep blossoming that this mistake is perpetuated. Ancestry has actually made it very easy to correct mistakes. And now, when might you find them? If you're on a census record, it's very possible that the person who took the census record uh, originally, the enumerator, actually uh, spelled a name wrong. And that's really common because our ancestors weren't so persnickety about spelling as we are. And... um, it could be an error that the person transcribing the record made uh, 
Or it could be an error that your ancestor didn't know where his parent was born. And I found that to be true. And sometimes if you're looking at records, and I'm, I'm just going to talk about census because it, it's the record that uh, record type people most often use. I found in one census record, not only the ancestor giving the wrong place of birth for his parent, but the enumerator spelled the name wrong, and the transcriptionist misspelled what the enumerator had done. Just a compounded so, error. It's a horrible mess. So if you find that, you can see, if you see a pencil icon next to somebody's name, that tells you that somebody has found the error and reported it to Ancestry. If you don't see a pencil icon next to the person's name, in the left-hand side of the Ancestry page, you'll have the option to um, add an alternate information. So that's actually pretty easy, and I've done that on several occasions. Once you click Add Alternate inf Information, uh, Ancestry will give you a drop-down box asking you to tell what the alternate information is. So was it the father's birthplace, the person's name, where they lived, you know, if they attended school, their age. It's kind of everything that you're going to see on a record. Ancestry will give the option to go in and put in alternate information. Um, and once you choose something from the, the drop-down, it's also going to ask you why why you're doing it, and then it asks you to add the update. So it's pretty thorough, and uh, Ancestry is really good. Now, you know, Ancestry is not going to go in, Lisa, and double-check that you know what you're talking about. Well, exactly. But, yeah, but it will give other searchers the opportunity to see what you have added, and they can make up their own mind. Of course, you know, if we all had access to original records, that would be great, and sometimes we're relying on another researcher's research, which can be dangerous. So, you know, genealogy research is a minefield of potential hazardous information, <laughs> and you just have to be willing to dig a little harder and make sure you've got the right information. I do want to say really quickly that Ancestry also has given you the option of reporting an issue and it's in the same section as adding alternate information, just to say those are two totally different things. Reporting an issue means that you're telling them there's something on this site that's inappropriate in some way. Could be a copyright violation or information about a living minor child. Mm -hmm. So those are two totally different things, but right. they're in the same section of corrections, of where you do corrections. So just to clarify, when you do submit uh, additional or corrected information, they're not actually replacing anything, correct? You're actually no, building on kind of a knowledge base. Yes, they are not. And actually, uh, with the recent changes at Ancestry.com, they've actually made it much easier to add alternate information because at one point in the Ancestry's past, there were very few things you could add alternate information about, mm -hmm. and now it's really kind of a whole host of things. And no, they are not replacing anything in those original transcriptions. They are, they are simply putting a pencil icon, and in some cases you may see two or three icons where three different people have corrected something on a record. Yeah, and I've seen that, and and I've seen ones that 
you know, I'm sure I feel as confident as anybody else does that I know exactly what that name should be. And it's amazing what the variations are that you come across. Um, uh, totally. I think the whole idea here, and you know, you can give your thoughts on this is, is that in the end, it is our responsibility, isn't it to Absolutely. not just take that information, but then say, okay, now my job is to go get proof, go get a primary source, if we can get some proof to back up whether I was right or wrong, or they were right or wrong. Right. And, and, you know, it is frustrating for genealogists, particularly those of us who are, are very careful about the records. Mm-hmm. It's very frustrating to run into a mistake that we absolutely know, probably because we've got that piece of paper in front yeah. of us. We absolutely know what was on the record. And trying to correct it on other websites can be extremely difficult, mm-hmm. if not a fool's errand. And I'm I'm really grateful that Ancestry's made it so easy for us to do this. Now, does it actually, I know you mentioned that it prompts us to say, well, why do you think this and that kind of thing? Does it actually, you know, say something about, you know, what is your source? Can you say based on this additional record so that to kind of help point the other people who come along to know no. where you got that? <laughs> well, you can, you actually can explain your source. Yes, I'm sorry. I said no, but my brain went sideways. Um, <laughs> yes, you can. Once you've added the update, you can explain what your source is. You don't have to. It's an optional field in the updated uh, box. And see, I think that's a great idea. And, and for me, I'm kind of thinking of one instance that I had somebody's death certificate in front of me. And um, it was m- really easy for me to say, you know, I have the death certificate. It's X number, X date. And that's that's how I know it's correct. Yeah. I'd almost love to see it to be mandatory. <laughs> it's like if you're going to yeah, throw sure. your two cents in there, you better back it up. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing, too, is... And I'll use just something from my own family tree. My uh, grandmother's mother died in that Spanish flu epidemic in the early part of the 1900s. So if you look at her on a census, my grandmother, the person who is shown as her mother isn't actually her mother. It's a stepmother. And which is no big deal, you know, because most people will actually go down the male line Mm-hmm. But I don't want people to go searching down this other woman's line when it has nothing to do with my family. So it gives me an opportunity to say the relationship with the mother is incorrect. That was actually a stepmother. And I think that's a great thing to be able to do. I do, too. I wonder if that was even a sign of the times. I know I've read um, documents with some ancestors. And when a mother passed away and then a stepmother came along, she's referred to as mother. You know, that exactly. was just kind of the norm that this is my mother now. And so, yeah, even those kinds of statements right from the horse's mouths, we still have to, to go back and do our homework and verify. Yeah, you know, we in most cases, unless we have, you know, we've done DNA testing, unless you know that just from personal information, I, you know, I know my own grandmother, um, it's going to be impossible because, as you said, the records indicate that that is a mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, great points. Things, errors and myths can pop up anywhere. And uh, it's nice to know that Ancestry does give us kind of a mechanism for doing that. So we're looking for that little pencil icon. I encourage everybody to include their sources for 
when you throw your two cents out there to kind of help everybody else on on their path of research as well. And Nancy, we love the book. It's unofficial guide to ancestry.com. Congratulations on a great book. And thank you so much for sharing your know how. Oh, thanks, Lisa. It's great as always. class 12 ways to diagnose and treat errors in your research with Sunny Morton. She helps the viewer deal with the broken branches and the withered limbs of our family tree. And here to share tips from that class is Family Tree Magazine contributing editor Sunny Morton. Hi, Sunny. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, it's fun to talk to you over here at the Family Tree Magazine podcast. We have you all the time on the Genealogy Gems podcast. And um, But in this particular segment, this is part of our Family Tree University Crash Course segment. And of course, our topic for this episode has been rooting out those mistakes and, and avoiding research mistakes. And that's uh, kind of what your video class, which was a rib- originally a webinar, was all about. Um, let's talk about this, because I, I noticed in looking through uh, the webinar that you kind of had it grouped into three areas. Um, talk a little bit about what those are so that we don't have to start over from scratch, but we can kind of move forward from here. That's right. You know, and I hear that a lot. Every, a lot of people who started their research have realized that they didn't quite approach it the best way when they first started. And I've heard professionals say this and admit that they had to go back and not quite start over, but definitely go back and review and rethink some of their original research and documents. And that's that's the first of my three areas is go back to those original sources. Um, take you'll go back further than just an index and take a look at really scrutinize the original records translate anything that you need to translate, whether it's a foreign language or whether it's legal language that you just don't understand, and look for those gaps in your sources. You're like, oh, I actually never did find out about this part of her life or something like that. And then second, we kind of regroup and organize. Once we realize what we've got to work with, then we kind of put everything, all your findings in a single place, create some timelines, map things out, make it, especially if you're a visual person, just put it all in front of you and say, okay, now that I really know what I have, where do I go from here? And that's where you get to that third step that I talk about. And each of these I talk about in a lot more detail. They talk about closing the gaps that you identify when you start timelining and mapping things out. Re- uh, repeating some older searches, reaching out through social networking, and travel to research on site, and then not being afraid when you think you have a good idea but you're not sure, not being afraid to act on a theory to proceed with your research and see, test it and see if it's right. Yeah, I love it. That's a very comprehensive kind of game plan to being able to make improvements in our research without, like you say, starting over from scratch. Um, let's talk a little bit because I know one of the areas that we can really kind of go back to and pull from are those original records. And we have to be able to evaluate the information, uh, kind of identify um, some items in there. Do you have a favorite way to approach that? Or what did you recommend in the video? Oh, sure. In the video, I talk about four different pathways that you can follow back to original sources. 
I think several of us might be surprised to go back to some of our early research and discover that we based everything we knew about that person on an indexed record (laughs) rather than actually looking at the original. And at the time, it seemed good enough to us. Sure, they wouldn't put it up on the genealogy website if it was wrong, would they? Well, it's possible that, first of all, what you see in an index is mistaken and it's inaccurate. And second of all, it's often incomplete. I've done indexing projects, and you really only cherry-pick a few pieces, a few data points from each record. You can't possibly key in every piece of information off a death certificate or things like that. So you, when you bypass you know, the, the steps back to that original document, you miss a lot of opportunities to find some new things. So four pathways back to those original sources. Look for those image records online at multiple websites. There's a lot of different genealogy websites out there. And use your best um, Google search strategies to look for those particular records. Um, Contact a repository yourself to order image copies if you need to, if you can't find the digitized records online. And then the third thing I would do And a lot of people would do the second because it's cheaper, but I don't like microfilm. (laughs) So microfilm is actually third on my list, (laughs) almost my last resort, um, is to look for these microfilmed records. A lot of records are not digitized, and it's not very easy to order copies yourself, but you can, for, for $7.50 or something like that, you can order microfilmed records through either Family Search. And you can, they also have um, interlibrary loan services through a lot of major libraries that you can find through WorldCat at the worldcat.org. You can find microfilm records of all kinds that you could order to um, a participating library near you and then look through those original images yourself. And then the very, the last resort, which I rarely ever have to do, is to order through a third-party research service. If you have a research on the beginner site on archives.com, which is sort of the beginner version of Ancestry in my mind, um, you'll see that they offer many times. They'll say, hey, we can order that record for you. Right. And, of course, they're going to charge you an arm and a leg for it. But you know what? <laughs> it's going to save you a lot of hassle. I know have a pretty good chance of getting it if it's available. So there are several ways you can track down those original records if they still exist. So even though we get excited that we see the index or transcription online and that's available for free, we're really not getting the whole picture, right? You've got to go back to those original records to get the full richness of what they offer. You know, that's absolutely true. So, and in fact, I'm working on a project right now for a friend of mine who's trying to track down his birth father, and he did find, um, he, he wants to know more about him, he's passed away, but he did find the um, State of California Death Index, but I convinced him that it was worth the money for him to order for that original record. He just brought it over last night, mm-hmm. and I have so many more lines of inquiry now, you know, with really recent deaths, sometimes, especially if it's not somebody who was really prominent or this was a first-generation immigrant who didn't leave a very big paper trail in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I was really having a hard time finding things. But now I have a cemetery location. I have the name of the funeral home. I have the name of the informant, and I have his final address. I have a lot of information. I know what he died of. Right. And so I have a lot more information now that I can use to learn about his life. I know where he worked and what he did. Oh, so fantastic. I, 
there's there's just a lot in there that I never would have gotten just off of that index of the death certificates. Well, and that kind of leads me to uh, the next area I kind of wanted to, to chat with you about, and that is that um, even if we take that extra step and go get the original record, that may not be the only one, right? I'd love to have yeah, you encourage cool. people to look for those multiple records. How do they go about that? Okay, well, that's a great. Let's go use this example of the death certificate. So I'm, since I'm holding it right in front of me, and it's one of those juicy pieces I haven't gotten to follow up on yet, right? right. I just got it last night. So I want to learn more about this man's death. I think to myself, where else is this event recorded? And as I mentioned, I just learned the name of the funeral home. The funeral home will have records. If those records still exist, then I will find them. If, um, what about the cemetery? Now, the cemetery would have created a different type of record, a burial record. There may be burial permits. I see that there, the death was reported to the coroner, and I see a case file number. There was no autopsy performed. So I don't know whether that case file would have been uh, populated at all. Mm -hmm. But once I start thinking about where else would this man's death be recorded? So an obituary, certainly. Um, If he attended any sort of church, which I don't know, there may have been some uh, something recorded there. Uh, The tombstone, once I get to that. The Social Security Death Index, I've already looked at, but that's certainly another one. So I haven't even dug into his uh, probate file or any deeds yet um, because I was waiting to see uh, what I could learn from that death certificate. So definitely it's worth a brainstorming session. When you look at one source, you say, all right, where else can I learn about this event? Exactly. It's, it's the tip of the iceberg. And, and it makes it me really think... Is. Well, you know, Family Tree Magazine has some great um, downloadable forms for free so that if you look up the one for death, uh, it's not going to have just the death certificate, but it has a whole checklist of just those kinds of items that you're talking about um, so that you can run through them and make sure you've scouted it down, you know, tracked down as many as you can. Absolutely. So a couple of, and I'll give you a couple of those suggestions, and that's, did you find them in every single federal and state or territorial census within the U.S.? because there were lots of sort of odd censuses that we don't think about, not just the ones every 10 years. But sometimes I think they even get lazy, and if the index for the 1930 or 20 census doesn't pull them up right away, then we're like, ah, well, we'll just skip them because I have them already for before and after. So find them in every possible census, uh, census. And then figure out what's unique to that location. So where this man died in California, I know the county, I'm going to go ask them, tax lists, city directories, voter records, civic organizations. What have you got there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there in your community that might have those? And based on this person was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. So I know he was Yugoslavian. So, okay, what community organizations or what other kinds of record groups does that, you know, pop out of the head of the, the people who are local who know their records and say, oh, well, his, he was Eastern European. He probably was buried here in this right. section of the cemetery, or he probably went to this little um, this little civic organization on the corner of the, that down the end of the block, those kinds of things. Great. Those things are very unique uh, to that yeah. particular area. Asking the people in the know, I mean, you know, why go on a wild Absolutely. goose chase when there's people who have expertise you know, these are all great suggestions. And, you know, we're talking with Sonny Morton, 
And uh, the, all of these come out of the webinar video that's available at Shop Family Tree. It's called 12 Ways to Diagnose and Treat Errors in Your Research. And Sunny, I think using these strategies and these questions, I love that, you know, asking ourselves those key questions, we're going to dig up so much more that when somebody does question what we've come up with, we've got something to back it up. Great ideas. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you for having me. As we wrap up this episode devoted to rooting out research mistakes, let's check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan and see what she has to share on this subject. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. You know, we've been talking all throughout the episode um, about different myths and mistakes and things that happen in our research. And um, I know that we have talked about the family tree problem solver in the past, but that seems like a really good fit. And I'm I'm hoping you have some more tips for us from that great book um, to help us kind of resolve some of these conflicts, kind of reduce the mistakes that we're making. Yes, the Family Tree Problem Solver really is my go-to guide for a lot of these issues that we run into in the course of our research, because no matter how good of a research you are, researcher you are, you're going to run into data that kind of leads you astray. Exactly. Um, there are, there's a ton of conflicting data, and trying to sort through all of that can be quite a challenge. So one thing that, um, a little snippet that I found in this book that I find um, myself going back to again and again is some tips for resolving that conflicting data, and I'd like to share those today. Oh, perfect. Okay, so the first thing to think about is when was the event recorded? So when you're looking at different sources of, or different birth dates, for example, given in different records, how do you know which one is correct? Well, you're going to try and figure out like which one is closest to the event actually having taken place. That's typically going to be the more reliable source for that information. So let's say the 1920 census lists your grandfather's immigration date as 1908. The 1910 census says 1909. Well, because the 1910 census was closer to that 1909 immigration date, we would you know, kind of consider that as being more reliable until, of course, you would find other sources of information that might support one date or the other. Yeah, that's a perfect, a perfect example, um, because it's, it's funny how you see dates and names kind of morph over the decades, right? Exactly. Um, and, you know, in the history of record keeping, people were not always as picky about the exactness of dates as we are now. And so you might see some looseness in that or even some purposeful obfuscation of dates in different records, depending on the circumstances that your ancestors were in. Right, exactly. Uh, Any more tips from the book on resolving these uh, data conflicts? Yeah, and here's one that I think is really important. And sort of the litmus test here is, does the record expressly give a fact or do you have to draw a conclusion? And in um, professional genealogy parlance, I think that's called indirect versus direct evidence. So the example given in the book is, does Jacob Simon's will state, I leave my belongings to my son Josiah, 
which causes no doubt in your mind that Josiah is Jacob's son? Or does the record require you to make an assumption? And you know that old saying about making assumptions. (laughs) Well, we don't want to make assumptions in genealogy and treat them as fact. So again, you know, weighing that indirect evidence versus direct evidence is a really important thing in resolving conflicting data. Exactly. And, you know, another um, kind of terminology that we hear quite often, of course, is primary and secondary sources. And when you think about somebody working on a will and he signs it off, you know, he's part of that document. He's the one that the information came from. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between the two and how they play into resolving these conflicts. Yeah, there's actually a whole chapter in the Family Tree Problem Solver about this analysis of evidence. And one thing that I like, um, the author Marcia Rising um, says, you know, primary source, of course, is a source that comes directly from the person, the event that happened, if it's happened close to the event, or if it came directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, A secondary source is something that might have been compiled by somebody else or that happened um, much later, so the information would be considered less reliable. Um, The point from Marcia Rising, the author of this book, that I think is important, she says, I believe that what truly matters is not so much whether a source is defined as primary or secondary, but how reliable that source is. And she goes into great depth about how you can analyze sources of evidence to determine how reliable they are. But a good rubric for anybody doing general, you know, finding of records and looking at them and determining how they fit into your family tree, you know, a primary source is usually going to be more reliable than a secondary source. Any secondary source, because by definition, it was sort of done after the fact or as a compilation, you're going to want to go back and verify that information in other sources to see if you can confirm it. Yeah, I I think a great example of that would be when somebody dies. You know, one of the first records we jump into when we do our family history research are death records. And of course, the death certificate, there's the doctor sitting right there, feeling the pulse, they're gone, they sign off. uh, And, and that is a pretty accurate date of death versus um, an obituary or the newspaper reporting on a death, well, that happens after the fact, and they're getting all that information secondhand. So um, when we get it first from the newspaper, we want to go digging for that death certificate. So um, those are those are great points and great ways and tools to resolve those conflicts. Any other um, thoughts or ideas that you've kind of gleaned from the book that really help you out? Well, Lisa, actually, I go back to the point you just made about the death certificates. This is a great... Um, distinction that people need to keep in mind. The same document can have primary information and secondary information in it. And using the death certificate example that you just gave, the death information on a death certificate is a primary source of information. Like you said, the doctor was there. um, (laughs) He could certify to the time of death. But, you know, a death certificate will also include, in some cases, birth information. Well, that death certificate isn't a primary source of information for the birth because it's happening when the person died. In fact, it may have not even been supplied by the person. It might have been supplied by a relative or some other informant who happened to be around at the time of death. So, you know, make those distinctions when you're analyzing records as to whether, you know, is this record a source of primary source of information for which facts? And when it's a secondary source of information, look for additional records to back that up. 
Oh, that's a perfect example. And certainly when we're thinking of, of our documents that way, we're really kind of taking them piece by piece and data by data. That helps us to be more accurate researchers and hopefully not cause confusion for future generations. We don't want to add problems to the mix. Wonderful ideas. This all comes from uh, the Family Tree Problem Solver, and that's available over at Shop Family Tree. We'll have a link in the show notes to the book. And Alice, great ideas. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next month. Okay, thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this June 2015 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and check out Nancy Hendrickson's book. It's called The Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com, and you will find it at shopfamilytree.com. Then head on over to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast, and there you will find the show notes for this episode. And of course, that includes everything we've talked about, including the website links. And finally, head on over to Family Tree University to enroll in the latest course, 12 Ways to Diagnose and Treat Errors in Your Research. Again, thanks for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. (laughs) 